We are in a series, we're almost done, uh, on the Word of God. And we have seen a, a lot of great things. We've heard a lot of good feedback from many of you about this series and what it means to you and to your family and to your view of the Bible. As we've done in the last several weeks, I'd like to ask you to read aloud with me a portion of that longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. A great poem about God's Word. Um, So it's up on the screen behind me, so that we're all reading the same version, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I would like to read Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24 together. Here we go. Ready? Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law today. And help that to be the case this week as we open our apps and open our Bibles and listen to your word May we see the wonderful things that are there for us. We thank you that your testimonies are delightful and they counsel us. So this week as we have decisions to make, as we have uh, interpersonal relationships that we have to deal with, as we have financial obligations, as we have discipline issues at home, as we have uh, those who are looking for jobs, all of these things help uh, us to remember that your word um, counsels us and makes us wise. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now. Help us to see what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you speak English as your first language? Your first language. Okay, you liars. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, what other first languages are present? Anybody else who does not speak English as their first language? Spanish? Japanese? All right, good. We've got a little bit of representation. And Russian, all right? Very good. How many of you took another language in school at some point? <laughs> okay. How many of you took more than two years of a foreign language in school? Three, more than three years? Four years? 27 years? Okay. All right. <laughs> um, how many of you learned a second language well enough so that you could functionally translate a conversation okay how many of you have been trained for that okay yes very good all right um how many of you have in the last year needed to translate a conversation between two people that didn't speak the same language okay a few people some of you have all right uh, how many of you have been on a mission trip where you've had to sit through a pastor teaching half as fast because someone's translating for them. (laughs) Okay. Yes. These are all um, opportunities that many of us have had 
uh, in thinking about language and thinking about how translation works. How many of you have watched a foreign film recently and read the subtitles? How many of you have watched an Irish film and had the subtitles on? Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's English, sort of. How many of you like the subtitles on just because? Whoa, really? What is wrong with... Okay, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about those preferences later. Okay. <laughs> How many of you have a translation of God's word with you today? All right, how many of you are using an app? Just, I like to see this. How many of you use an app today? Woo, that percentage is going up. Okay. Well, um, I want to do, uh, we're raising hands a lot, so I'm, we're getting exercise today. This is good. Just one more. That's not true. Um, <laughs> I looked down and saw more than one more question mark here. I want to know what version you're going to be using right now during this sermon. So, how many of you will be using the ESV, the English Standard Version. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say maybe three-fifths, two-thirds. Okay, who's using um, any kind of NIV? Okay, several of you. Anybody using the, the NLT, the New Living Translation? Yeah, yeah, several, okay. Anyone using the Message? Okay, uh, New American Standard? All right, there we go. Um, how about King James? Several King James. How about New King James? Okay. All right. What did I miss? Ah, the, C, the Christian Standard Bible or the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Okay. Very good. What else? Any, anyone I missed? Any other versions of the Bible? Okay. We got plenty of them there. And there are a lot more that I could have asked about. Um, this is interesting. This is good because this is uh, what Pastor Ron and I were talking about this week is one of the most asked, maybe the most asked question um, he gets about the Bible is why are there so many versions? What do we do with the versions? Which version can I trust? Which version should I use? Um, and before we go any further, um, in deference to my boss, you should uh, go back to the sermon on January 9th, 2011 and listen to uh, this young man named Ron Johnson preach a very similar message and cover some things I'm not going to be able to get to today. Um, But that was also the Sunday, uh, eight years ago, that we switched from using the NIV here um, in the message, in the sermon, because the message is a translation. Um, (laughs) In the Sunday service, we switched from the NIV um, to the English Standard Version. If you want some more background on that, you could go listen to that message. Ron went for more than an hour. I will not be doing that today. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> in the last several weeks in this series, we have seen that the Bible, God's Word written down for us, is the very breath of God. It is inspired. We have seeing that it is without error in the original manuscripts. It's inerrant. It is authoritative for our lives. It speaks into our lives. It is sufficient for all that we need to know to be saved and to live our life as Christians. It is necessary for us to actually know God for ourselves and to know this world accurately. We've also seen that it is trustworthy. It's accurate. There is a preponderance of evidence for this. 
God has through thousands of years, through men and women, preachers and monks, prophets and apostles, outlaws and martyrs, missionaries and Sunday school teachers, people standing under a tree, people sitting in a pew. He has used all these people to preserve the Bible for us so that we can come this morning holding a copy of God's word or get this, having access to thousands of different language languages and translations right here on a device. As we've gone through this series, we've seen all of these great evidences. And today I want to ask, so what? Really, so what? Because this doesn't matter if we don't actually open this, this Bible. This doesn't matter if we don't live according to what it says. It's just a bunch of cool facts that are really nice. They may help me win an argument if that's what you want to do. But it does us no good if we ignore the word of God to know all these things about the word of God. We need more than the Sparks notes. We need more than the cheats. We need more than the movie version. We need God's word. And so we must get into the Bible so the Bible gets into us. Did you hear that? We must get into the Bible so the Bible gets into us. You know those people in your life that you can tell the Bible's gotten into them? Um, not because they force it out, but just kind of oozes out of the way they speak, the way they pray, what they're excited about. Village, we must join our spiritual ancestors and be people of the book. That's what our ancestors have been called for generations. People of the book. We are defined by what God has spoken and what God has spoken has been recorded in the Bible. And if God has spoken, then we need to know what he has said and then we must act on it. If, if the God that the Bible reveals is real and actually exists, it would be the highest form of foolishness to acknowledge that that God has spoken and to ignore his speech. So I thought we would start today with just a quick survey of examples in the Bible of people studying, acting on, needing, reading, teaching God's word. So this is going to go too fast for you to turn there, but you may want to write some of these down or try to, to keep up to some of them. But I thought I'd start um, with a young man named Yeshua. Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem in Luke 2, 41 through 52. You may remember the story that Jesus and his family were in Jerusalem for Passover and it's a big feast and people are coming from all over the world and all over the land of Israel. And as they go to leave, both Joseph and Mary assume Jesus is with cousins or uncles or aunts or other people from the tribe of Judah. And they finally come together and go, where's Jesus? I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. There's no Jesus. So they go back to Jerusalem and where do they find him? They find him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. That's a really good place to start. Listening to the teachers and asking them questions. In fact, we'll have that opportunity in the education hour in about 35 minutes to sit among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And I think sometimes we read that and we tend to go, well, yeah, duh, he's God. But I think that we tend to overlook the fact that he's a 12-year-old boy 
who is fully man, learning and absorbing. And he is asking questions. He is giving answers. People are amazed at his understanding. Rewind uh, in the Bible. And 400 years before there was ever a king in Israel, Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 17, after he said, don't have a lot of wives, don't go to Egypt to pick up a lot of horses and don't get rich, Solomon, it says this, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Checks and balances. And it shall be with him and he shall read it he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Notice that. Read, keep, do. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What was central to the coming monarchy in Israel? It was whether or not the king, the leader, would follow God in reading his word and acting upon it. Later on in the story of the scriptures, Ezra comes along, gets a Bible book named after him. He's a priest whose job it was to teach the people about God's law and their covenant with Yahweh. And notice Ezra's method in Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. How many of you teach the word of God to any age on this campus or off sometime in 2019? How many of you are going to teach the Bible? Okay, every parent should raise their hand. All right. This is a fantastic paradigm for us. Study, do it, teach it. You also can notice how important understanding God's word is in Nehemiah 8. As the people return from exile and they gather, they build a platform so all the people can gather and hear Ezra teach the word. As he teaches, he gives the sense. He explains what he's reading so that they understand. And there are Levites walking through the crowd, teaching as they go, helping the people understand. And at the end of that, there is great rejoicing, not because it's a party day. The Bible says there's great rejoicing because they understood the the word of God. Rejoicing at understanding God's word. In Daniel 9, Daniel's careful study of Jeremiah's prophecies led him to prayer and fasting and confession before God. Daniel is reading Jeremiah and it drives him to prayer and fasting and one of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible of confession to the Lord. When we're taught this scripture, like right now, how should we receive it? We should be like the Berean Jews when Paul came to town. Acts 17.11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, some of you think that you need to apologize to me on a Sunday when there's a little bit of this going on. I mean, not anyone here, but hypothetically you. And we we understand we have really comfortable seats, so we're going to do away with those. No, just kidding. (laughs) But people are tired, and we understand that. But is the general overall approach 
to Buaro Street on Sunday morning, eagerness to hear God's word. Man, I want a feast. And we tell you, we, we say this a lot, right? Like, come to church to serve. But listen, you should expect to be served by the, the speaker who's giving the word of God out. Laying out a feast in front of us. These Berean Jews received the word with all eagerness. And then what did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's nice, Paul. I'm glad you're an apostle. Let's check the scriptures. Because that is where we can find how to judge your teaching. Think of the Awana theme verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That word means to cut a path in a straight direction. It's used sometimes of making a straight highway through a hilly, forested area. Rather than going around, it drives straight through. This sounds a whole lot like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, doesn't it? To trust in the Lord with all your heart and not to lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths, make straight your paths. God's Word in several places in the Scripture is described as a sword. A dangerous and effective weapon. That implies training. <laughs> right? You do, you, in order to wield a weapon, you should receive proper training. And so from God's word, we understand that we need to be those who study it, who read it, who do it, who keep it, who teach it, who practice it. How do we do this? We do this, all of us, with a translation of the Bible from the original languages. Okay? There is a few of us in this room that can read some Hebrew and some Greek, probably just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> okay? Um, and that's in a nice font, <laughs> right? Like not on a parchment from a long time ago, perhaps. We are reading in English, or some of you in Spanish, or Russian, or Japanese, a translation of the word of God. A translation takes a work from one language to another, right? That's pretty pretty obvious. But a translation goes from one language into another. A version, okay, which many of our Bibles have that V in there, okay, version, or, or B Bible, right? It's a different kind of Bible. Um, because a version is a variation of a translation. Now, you realize there are I don't know to say thousands, but at least hundreds of languages around the world that have had the Bible translated into their language. Praise the Lord. That's it. They got that translation, that version. That's it. That's the only one in their language. So how blessed we are to have dozens of versions. Mostly a blessing, sometimes a curse. We have so many Bible versions. Why is that? Well, one, one very important reason is because of religious freedom. Like, we haven't been persecuted in a long time. So, we have scholars, and we have professors, and we have theologians, and we have stylists who have the time, the legality, to spend their lives to get paid to translate the Bible, to work hard at making a different version. That's one of the reasons that we have so many versions. We should praise God for that. That's an amazing, amazing thing. We can go back and look at just the, the history just of the English Bible. And many of you remember, we did that several years ago, Truth Remains. We had those really old Bibles here. 
Um, and we had some experts come in and we, got, we were able to look at some of those really old Bibles. We had some videos teaching us the history of the English Bible. I mean, people were burned at the stake. Can you imagine if you went to Walmart today and out in the parking lot, there was a huge bonfire with a pole sticking out of it and they're about to put a person on it. I mean, that is like, that's, that's, we can't even imagine, imagine that happening. And then to imagine that it happened because somebody had the audacity to want everybody else around to be able to read the Bible. That's why we have versions. Because we don't do that anymore. Praise God. And there are lots of parts and places in the world where this does happen. We heard on Thursday night from Alan Matamoros from Partners International that the Kabil Berbers have the full Bible in their language. Praise God, they've even been able to revise it a little bit. Even with some pressure there in North Africa. Um, if you have a, a Bible app on your phone, it is almost unbelievable how many versions you have um, at just the push of your thumb, just right there in front of you. It's amazing. Why are there so many Bible versions in English? <laughs> um, because English is now the most dominant language on the planet. It was spread around the globe by the British Empire. And so it is the most popular second language around the world. When people from lots of nations get together, oftentimes they speak to one another in English, even though that is not their first language. So there is English all over the world. Uh, it's also um, been said in the past that the Americans and the English-speaking peoples of the British Isles are divided by a common language. And so the Brits have some of their own versions um, that use some of their um, idiosyncrasies and idioms, and we have a plethora of our own that do the same thing. Also, I don't know if you've noticed this, um, but number one in your notes, English changes. English changes. Um, just think of the words that your grandparents use. That when you leave their house, you laugh about because it's really funny that they use that word <laughs> that nobody uses anymore. That's because English is changing. Um, th- we know this, right? I need to go to the store and buy a new mouse. <laughs> I saw that one from Pastor Ron. Um, friend is a verb. Did you friend me on Facebook? Did you friend me? It's befriend. No, no, it's not. It's not befriend. It's friend. <laughs> That's different. That's new. Um, podcast. What is that? A po- is that like a like whales and you like cast your net? To- That's illegal. <laughs> that word didn't exist like a decade and a half ago. English changes. Not only that, but regional English changes. I reckon. <laughs> Did y'all know that? We, <laughs> we, we don't use that. Or how about when we say, yeah, no. No, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> Shakespeare's turning in his grave. <laughs> this is why we need to have newer versions. How many of you have read a King James Bible recently and not known what you've read? Okay, if you read long enough, you're like, I don't know that word. But I know that Bible verse, but I don't know that word. That's interesting. 
There are some words in the King James Bible that are offensive. <laughs> there are some words in the King James Bible that my mom taught me not to use. Because I grew up in the late 20th century, not in the 1600s. Words change, English changes. And English is a fairly new language on the world scene. Um, it, it's all kinds of messed up. <laughs> Borrowing from all kinds of languages with all kinds of different roots. Um, I have heard from several people that English was very difficult to learn because the rules applied until they didn't. This is why there are so many English versions. We are blessed to have this. We would be a little bit hamstrung to have to stick to the King James Bible. As beautiful as the language in the King James Version still is, there is so much in the King James Version version that we just don't use, we don't understand. We would have to explain ourselves so many different ways. There are other reasons. But number two, there are different translation methods. There are different translation methods. Um, if you have a physical Bible, open it up to the very, 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 very front and turn until you find something that you've never read called a preface. Or you might call it a preface because you've never read one. <laughs> because who reads the preface, the prologue, the introduction, right? If the letters are in Roman numerals, we don't read it. There's a preface in your Bible. Um, probably on your online Bible as well, though it might be a little bit more difficult to access depending on what program you're using. But there's a preface in, I, I think, every single Bible in here. Maybe you have a simplified Bible that left it out, but for the most part, there's a preface in there. There's an introduction. And in that, there is something like a translation philosophy that tells you how the team or the committee that put your Bible together uh, used different philosophies, different methods in order to come up with what they came up with. Okay, so when I ask us to quote John 3.16, some of you are going to say this really weird word and you're going to say, begotten, which I bet you didn't use this last week, unless you were quoting John 3.16. Okay, I remember, I, I have to train myself not to say whosoever. Okay, which you also probably didn't use this last week. <laughs> whosoever is in here needs to get out. <laughs> nope. That's not, that's probably not what you did. If you, if you did that though, you're really cool. Um, in the preface, there are different, um, uh, uh, ways of uh, even capitalizing. Which words are capitalized? Which words aren't capitalized? What are we going to do with the name of God? What are we going to do with the name, um, of God? How are we going to translate that? What are we going to do with, um, uh, words like slave or servant? How does that come across in American context where we have um, a history of black chattel slavery. What are we going to do with that if it's different in the Bible? Are we going to call it slave? Does that bring up the wrong connotation? Many, 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 many of these things are brought up in the preface to your Bible. Good afternoon read today. Sit on a non-sleepy uh, surface and read the preface to your Bible. A lot of interesting things in there. Now, there are basically... Three different translation philosophies. Now, the, understand there's variations. But basically, there's word for word. Okay, word for word. Or, or sometimes it's called formal equivalence. So the form of one, tra of one language is kept as much as possible in the form of the receptor language. So we look at the Greek of the New Testament, and we look at the form, and we try to keep it as close as we can 
when we move it into English. Uh, the ESV calls itself essentially literal. Okay? There are other, other words for that as well. But word for word works as hard as possible to make sure that for every word in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, or the Greek, there is a corresponding word in English. Which, as many of you know who have translated, that doesn't, that doesn't work one for one. Right? Como se llama? Okay? What am I, what am I, what am I meaning? What's your name? What did I say? <laughs> there was a lot of this. There was a lot of this. Yeah. Is it like what yourself called? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, or in Spanish, we ask people how many years they have. Okay. How many years you got? Oh, I don't know. How many years do I have? <laughs> but that's not, right? That's not how that goes. Okay. Um, as we translate, there's always going to be um, compromise to try to make it make sense. Okay? Um, and, and that's really important that whether or not, no matter what your translation philosophy, that's going to be the case. Unless it's an interlinear Bible, and then it makes very little sense. Okay? Which is why none of you raised your hand and said, I'm reading an interlinear Bible. Okay? If you are, that's really cool too. Okay, because there actually are some that are interlinear and have the, the like an ESV or NIV or something. Okay, the next one is called thought for thought. Thought for thought translation is sometimes called dynamic equivalence or functional equivalence. And this, this um, method of translation actually came from the mission field. Now understand, when someone goes to the, the jungles of Papua New Guinea and needs to translate the Bible into that local... Indian dialect, okay, that tribal dialect, um, there is going to be a varying levels of, uh, of scholarship, right? So the, the ESV, the NIV, the NLT all had dozens of people working on those translations. That is generally not the case in the jungles. Um, they have as many people as they can, maybe four or five people working on that translation. Again, this shows us the great uh, privilege that we have of living in a place with religious freedom, with peace, um, because we can have committees like this that work on these kinds of things. However, from the, on the mission field, sometimes it's these people need the word of God and we can't wait 37 years for a revision of our first draft to come. We'll work hard. We'll be as, as precise as possible. We've got to get the word of God into this people's language. Also, there's probably no history of Christianity there. Where there is a memory of Christianity in our culture, we understand when someone says, he's like a Goliath. We know what that means. Um, when someone says a common uh, biblical phrase, we, we kind of get that just because we've received it in our culture. That's not the case in the jungle. But what happened was it came from the mission field and came back to um, Western nations and thought, well, why don't we try this? Sometimes for younger readers, sometimes for um, people that are learning English as a second language, sometimes for people that have um, some learning disabilities, could use a thought-for-thought translation. The, the, danger, the danger here. Um, is that you're reproducing not the words of the original text, but the ideas or the thoughts, and that automatically means there's a higher level of interpretation. 
So go to the book of First Thessalonians. I just want to show you briefly an example here. I wish I had time for more examples, but here's a great thing you can do. Um, Terry Hall yesterday in our elder meeting said that one of the things he does on his app is he'll pull up four different versions um, of the same verse and compare them and look at them, which is an amazing thing you can do right there on your phone okay, or your tablet. You can read God's word and read it in several translations at the same time, different versions at the same time. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse three, remembering before our God and father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that there's one of Paul's formulas there, faith, hope and love. And there are there are placed um, there in a pretty normal way, a pretty plain way. Um, from how it is in the Greek. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Now, some of you have um, the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV or the NLT, and that's not what it says. It says something like this. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. That's the NIV. Or the NLT says, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope. Or the CSB says, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Now listen, all of those are good translations. We're okay, at Village Bible Church, we're okay with these versions. We like these versions. We use these versions. However, what you just saw was more interpretation by the translators. And I think that one of the things I'm more convinced of as I studied for this is that my preference, I'm not going to die on this hill. It's not a closed fist thing like the deity of Christ, okay? Um, It's an open-handed thing that we can debate about and talk about and disagree on and be totally fine, okay? But I really think that it's best for the Bible that we preach from and for the Bible that you do your serious study from, that it be a more literal, a more word-for-word translation because that allows the teacher then to take the responsibility to carefully and prayerfully communicate God's word and interpret it. Uh, we think, I think a lot of us think of the Bible as our own private little book. It's my Bible. I love my Bible. That's okay. I love my Bible too. It smells great. But... Uh, <laughs> But um, you, you have, we have all different kinds of Bibles, all different qualities of Bibles. Um, and, and what's really important is that we remember that for the most part in the history of the world, the Bible is not, mere, is not primarily a personal book. It is a communal book. It's the book we live by. So many people grew up in oral cultures. They, didn't re- they never read the Bible because they couldn't read. <laughs> They memorized the Bible. They were taught the Bible. They spoke the Bible. They spoke back the Bible. What's really important then is that we leave room for interpretation from a spirit-indwelt teacher that God has gifted to the church. Ephesians 2, Paul says that God gifts the church with pastors and teachers and that we're to equip the, the, the church for the work of the ministry. That means raising up other teachers who are going to teach my kids, <laughs> who are going to teach kids from the neighborhood that come for Awana, that don't get the Bible at home, that are going to teach in a Bible study at your work so that we have the opportunity to take the word of God as close 
to the words that were written down and then interpret them for those who are listening. Another example will be later on in 1 Thessalonians, and this is a, a, a phrase that Paul uses a lot, and that's to, to walk, right? He's to walk in a manner worthy. Um, we use this all the time. Um, how's your walk? Okay, which sounds weird, right? Like, that's really Christianese. Okay, how's your walk? I mean, it's good. I'm, I didn't hurt my ankle, so my walk is really great. What do we, what do we mean? Your walk with the Lord. So, so what you're saying, John, is you and the Lord went for a walk? Like in the Garden of Eden? See, what are we, what are we saying? Okay. We're talking about a spiritual relationship, right? Let's go on a walk. <laughs> okay. Pastor Ron used that a few weeks ago, right? He used to tell people, let's go on, let's go for a walk. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. But because he had a relationship with, him, that, with that person, that was something they were going to do. So um, the NIV and the NLT and some other thought-for-thought translations just get rid of that, that image of walk and just say live, which is very literal. And it's actually, it, it, it means very similar things, but you lose the imagery of walking with somebody. Okay? So what, what, what a word-for-word does is it allows you to get a little bit closer to the original text and then to have room for interpretation. Could you misinterpret it? Of course you could. You're fallible. But guess what? That's why we're a church. (laughs) So that when I come up here and say something from the word of God, and you go, what? And then you go tell Pastor Ron, (laughs) and on Tuesday he talks to me (laughs) about something I said on Sunday. See, but but really that's keeping me accountable, right? So we don't just sit here... Teachers. Okay? No, we interact together. That's why you should open your Bible (laughs) when someone's teaching from it. So you make sure that that's actually in there. This is really important. Um, One of the things that that Pastor Ron does, that that I do, that many of you do, is to compare versions while you're studying. Because that really helps us to get kind of a rounded out view of a word because words don't have just fixed meanings. Okay? Okay? They, they take on meaning from the context around them. Different words have sometimes very, very different meanings. Okay? Um, but you use these different versions to understand the scriptures. And the last one is a paraphrase. Generally, usually a paraphrase is not as concerned with the original languages as trying to make the readability factor as high as possible. So the message is a paraphrase. Um, uh, I think it's Philip's translation from several decades ago was um, a paraphrase. The Living Bible uh, was a paraphrase. Not the New Living Translation. The Living Bible uh, was a paraphrase. And we actually have... Um, is it back there? I'm sorry. Did, did I have that up there, Jeremiah? The um, timeline kind of almost a continuum of different versions of word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrase. Uh, I believe that's also in your notes. You can take a look at that. Um, a little later. Now, here's the thing when people start to debate these things, okay? Listen, this is not a high-level issue that we need to, like, fight over, okay? I don't believe that in most English versions the gospel is at stake. Now, let's pay attention to make sure it's, it's not. But for the most part, we have been blessed with faithful versions and translations of the Bible. It seems to me as I read that advocates of a certain view or a certain version tend to overvalue their own work, which is understandable. It's what we do, right? and undervalue uh, others' work. 
So sometimes it results in language that implies there's this vast difference between the NIV and the ESV. Guess what? They're both in English, so there's not that vast of a difference. <laughs> okay? But it, it tends to be a little bit extreme. That's what our culture does, right? And that's what we do. We push to extremes. Okay? Conservative, liberal, right, left. There's no in-between. <laughs> no, there is in-between. <laughs> there is in-between. There are moderating and different um, versions of God's word. I want you to consider what happens when we actually do this. If you do the rooted reading, um, which is available on our website, and it's also in the worship folder the first Sunday of every month, takes you through the entire Bible in two years. Um, there is an acronym on there called REAP. It's, a, it's a, a helpful way to think about reading the scriptures and studying them. And I looked up different acronyms. <laughs> there are some great acronyms for studying the Bible. Apple, coma, <laughs> That one should have been rethought. Facts, feast, focus, grow, hear, joy, meals, OIA, OIA. Uh, that's observation, interpretation, application, playing with fire class. Plant, power, praise, pray, press, prosper, rest, salt, soak. If you go to Wildwood, we learn soap. Here's my favorite one, space pets. I'm just going to leave that one there. Also, word, but we use reap. Many of these are really good ones, but reap quickly is read. <laughs> it's a great place to start. Study the Bible by reading it. Read it with an open heart, with open eyes. Write down observations. Look hard. Stare at the text. Fight the familiar. I already know what this says. Well, aren't you the arrogant one? Why don't you come under the word of God and consider that perhaps there's something there you haven't seen before or perhaps something you've forgotten? Examine, e-examine. Examine these observations deeper to make sure you know what they mean. This is where the work of interpretation comes in. This is where maybe at this point, possibly, you read your study Bible notes. Or you look at a commentary or a Bible dictionary. What does this passage mean? And then A, apply. Remember Ezra? Study, do, teach. How will you be different because of what you have just read? To master the text, we must let it master us. To master the text, we must let it master us. And the last, the last word is, is pray. Pray that God will help you apply his word to your life because you just deciding you're going to do it doesn't really work that well all the time, right? I'm going to wake up earlier. <laughs> right, okay. I'm going to exercise. Uh-huh, yeah. Maybe. Pray to God's spirit, I want to do this, but I know my own flesh is weak. Please help me, Lord. Remember Daniel responding to God's word. How? He stopped eating. <laughs> like he read God's word and he said, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to instead pray and confess my sins and the sins of my people as if it really mattered. Because it did. In your worship folder notes, there are lots of resources, um, some books, some websites, some apps. Uh, I, I really want to point out our church library um, is a fantastic resource for you. If you've not been in there recently, um, uh, Linda and Vicki and the others who help in there do such a great job. Um, there are tons of great resources. For example, how many of you have ever used Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Okay. All right. That was a good over 50 crowd. Um, <laughs> guess what, less wrinkly ones? There's a new version... Okay, called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And his son, Sean McDowell, helped Josh McDowell redo it. And it's 
up to date with all of the most recent scholarship. It's a fantastic book. And if you want to go classic, I think we still have the old version as well. I'm going to get some comments. All right. I did not get enough sleep. (laughs) This is what happens. (laughs) Are we recording this? (laughs) Let me just uh, point you to one last thing. What happens if we lose the scriptures? And I don't mean if you lose your Bible, because we live in America and you can go buy another one, or you can get your phone out. What happens if we lose the Bible in our common memory, in the way that our culture functions, in the way that our families function, in the way that we approach tomorrow morning? We don't have time, but I would encourage you to read Second Chronicles 34 this week. Second Chronicles 34. Good King Josiah. And they literally lost the law. They lost it. Read that, read that chapter and see what happens. What are the implications when we lose God's word? Let's pray and ask God to send a revival of his word here on this place and this people. God, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that Pastor Ron has done the last five weeks to drill down deep to remind us of what we believe about the Bible and why. Thank you for the encouragement that it has been that in a world that seemingly lacks any objective truth and anything to hold on to, that your word is deep, deeply rooted. It is trustworthy. It is accurate. It is true. It is effective. It is sharp. It is powerful. The grass is going to fade, the flowers are going to wither, but the word of our God will stand forever. So Father, we ask you to give us tender hearts. Help us to walk after your precepts with all our hearts and our souls. And we pray that you would send a revival here in this place, on this people, in Orange County. There would be a revival of not just curiosity or interest in your word, but in study and application of your word so that we would live it out, that we might see your name glorified here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.